Hey, church, thanks for being with us this morning. Today, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, last week, we covered Nehemiah building the walls and being committed to his great work, so much so that he would not come down to temptation. He would not come down to excuses. He would remain focused on what God had called him to do. And so today, we're going to go to the next step of this story that's often overlooked as we look at Nehemiah Chapter 8. As I was getting ready for this sermon, I stumbled upon a story. In the late 1800s, there was a boxer that came on the scene in America. His name was Norman Selby. But he didn't like his name. He didn't think his name was marketable. So he changed his name when he would fight. And he came up with a better name that was Charles the Kid McCoy. And Charles the Kid McCoy was a really good boxer. Being only 160 pounds, he often found himself challenging heavier boxers, even all the way up to the heavyweight division, just in order to prove himself to be one of the best fighters in the world. Even today, he is known and voted by Ring Magazine as one of the 100 greatest punchers of all time. Now, with that popularity, a lot of people wanted to use that popularity for their own benefit. And so they thought maybe they could steal his name. And so many people started referring to themselves as McCoy. And that started to anger the kid McCoy. And so what he ended up doing is he began to call himself the kid, the real McCoy. And it kind of stuck. And that's why you still hear that phrase being used. That is the real McCoy. And today as we study Nehemiah, we're going to get to a place where we study revival amongst the people of God. And we are going to discover what is the real McCoy in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, have you ever really seen a revival? Now, when we think of the word revival, we think of Billy Graham. We think of Charles Spurgeon. We think of the next great awakening. We think of these big pastors with large bellowing voices that are able to convince people through the power of the Holy Spirit to make decisions in order to come to faith in Christ. When I think of the word revival, naturally I think of a crowded altar with thousands upon thousands. Thousands of thousands, thousands upon thousands of people coming down the altar at somewhat of like a Billy Graham crusade. But that is truly not what revival is. See, revival is when a Christian who has gotten kind of cold and a little bit lukewarm, when that person has their soul set on fire again for the Lord. See, we use the word revival. Key syllable in the word revival is re. See, we think about revival being where a bunch of people get saved, and that's revival. No, that is vival. You can't have a revival until you first had a vival. You feel me? And what we focus on all too often is we think about revival being just a place where a lot of people get saved. No, that's a great thing. That's salvation. That is God using the Holy Spirit to soften the hearts of the hard-hearted in order to come back to faith in him. But what revival really is, is when a Christian softens our heart back to the Lord. Now, there's two types of revival that we'll be going back and forth with today. We have personal revival and we have community revival. You can see revival in a community. You can see revival in a church. You can see revival in a state, in a country, in a world. And that's what we should be praying for as believers. But also you have revival in the hearts of individuals. Now listen, I, 
I've been in youth ministry long enough and anybody that's ever been around a youth camp, what you'll notice is there's this, there, there's always this kid in every group. And this kid is the one that gets rededicated to Christ every single summer, every single D now, every single youth camp, every single revival. Anytime anything happens where the altar call is given, you have this one kid who needs to rededicate. Now hear me. I'm not knocking that, but here's my deal. We need to live a life to where we live a life of dedication where we don't need to rededicate. I pray that we really start to pursue Jesus in such a way that revival in your own hearts and revival in Emmanuel does not need to happen because we are continuously living revived. I don't want to fall back. In order to have revival, you have to go from being hot to being cold. I don't want to go that direction. We can have revival services. We'll probably call them something different, to be honest with you. But here's the concept. It's not about a service. Revival is when a hot heart has grown cold and then been hot again. And hear me, I want for us to live lives as Christians that we don't have to rededicate because we've never lost our dedication in the first place. You feel me? That's where I am today. So many people get rededicated and rededicated, but they were never dedicated in the first place. Hear me, today I want to figure out how we can live life to where we are not having to experience revival every day, but rather we are living in continuous life of revival. We are living the benefit of being revived initially, the revival, if you will. All throughout scripture, we see the importance of revival. All throughout culture, we see the importance of revival. We've written so many songs. There are so many scriptures all over it. Psalms 119, will they not thyself Revive us again that your people, Lord, may rejoice in you. Revive us again and fill your heart with thy love. Let each soul be rekindled from fire from above. Hear me. There's, it's so popular. There's another song I won't even like begin to try to sing, but it's on the top chart to the Christian 100 list right now. You're my revival song. You start where I belong, which is on my knees. When I am weak, you're strong. You meet me when I'm on my knees, and it starts with me. I think for hundreds and thousands of years, Christians have been praying for revival because we have grown cold. Christians as a whole have grown cold. We are not as excited as what we once was. Just like any good thing, it is easy to grow stale. It is easy to take for granted. But today I'm hoping that we can recognize that we must be hot for the Lord as individuals and as Christians. So if Nehemiah has taught us anything, he has taught us that with great work comes great opposition. And he was doing everything he could to rebuild the walls. God allowed him to rebuild the walls in 52 days. And in those 52 days, a lot of things came against him. But Nehemiah was faithful. And as they were finishing the walls, I love this. God got all of the credit. See, it says in chapter 7, for they perceived, the enemy perceived that this work was done by our God. See, in 7.1, it says that when this, then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had appointed. Afterwards, everybody 
was registered by genealogy. And beginning in verse 7 through 72, we find their names. And in verse 73, it talks about how when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. And so this is the setup for the revival. Because what had happened was there was this mass exodus, if you will, because the Babylonians, the Persians, the exile, they end up coming back to Jerusalem. Ezra has done his best to reestablish the culture. Nehemiah has done his best to reestablish the walls and the pride of the city. But yet, after they get back in their homes, everyone's settled back. They all have jobs. The walls are up. Everyone is now protected, but something is missing, and it was an excitement for the God who had got them there. See, I heard a story about a woman who was found dead in her home. Now, what's significant about this was it took people four years to realize that she was dead. Four years. She was in this home. She didn't have any family, and in turn, as her papers started to pile up, the neighbor just thought he was doing a service to her if she didn't want her papers, so he just threw them away. And then he noticed that the weeds in her yard were growing up, so every week this neighbor was trying to be a good neighbor knowing he lived next to an elderly lady. And so he mowed her yard, kept her house clean, kept the outside looking great. And then finally, when they started to wonder if she was okay, when cars were never leaving and cars were never coming, they finally called help. And help came in and they had to wear those hazmat suits because it had been four years since that woman had been alive and nobody knew. Can I tell you that there are churches today that look like they're living, but they have been dead for years. There are Christians today that look like they are living for the Lord, but truly I tell you, that fire that was once hot for the Lord is no longer lit. They are dead men and women walking because they're no longer connected to the Lord like they should be. We see so but so many people, and you're just going to have to stick with me in this mental image that I have. There are so many zombie Christians. They are truly walking and talking, but they're not really alive. They're not really claiming the gospel. They're not really excited about the Lord. And in turn, they are not walking in life. They are walking in death. And so they had this desperate need for revival in chapter 8. And so in order for us to experience revival in our own hearts and in churches as a whole, in communities, we need to look at a couple specific ingredients that we find in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now I'm going to read Nehemiah chapter 8, 1 through 12 as a whole. And forgive me, I'm going to skip over those really hard names to pronounce. So you'll just work with me on this one. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And when all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who can understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. And beside him stood 
Skip with me, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all of the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then all of these important guys helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this, is, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has... Who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So in order to see personal and community revival. The first ingredient to that recipe is we must have a reference for the word of God. If you jump back with me to verse one, all the people gathered as one man, so they come unified into the square before the water gate where there's lots of people. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So they come in, and if you look at the wording here, it says they told Ezra the scribe. Now, Ezra is seen as a scribe. Some people might even call Ezra a prophet. He was a leader. They do not show him respect. They demand it. They do not ask. They do not say, hey, if you have time, could you, could you set up a time for us to? No, right here, right now, we are not leaving until you give us God's word. See, I think of this really weird song that we sing at Christmas sometimes. Oh, bring us a figgy pudding. Oh, bring us a figgy pudding. Oh, right? Now, first of all, Weird verse, but then the second verse, oh, we won't go until we get some. We won't go in. And first of all, I think, why in the world do, do we care so much about, I have no idea what figgy pudding is, but it better be good, you know? But then second of all, here's my thing. It's when we think about this concept, that's exactly what they're doing. They're going, listen, bring us the word of God, and we are not leaving until we get it. We are not going away. We are going to be on your front porch every single day until you give us God's word. It's like when that kid comes to your door on Halloween, and he says, trick or treat, and he means it. That's what the people are really saying. Listen, we are demanding the word of God. We are so hungry. We will not leave until we get it. I love that they demand it. What if we were like that? What if people were like that? Demanding God's word. They come unified. So is Ezra going to argue with them? Absolutely not. The whole community comes as one man in community, demanding, having a joint heart for 
the word, having reverence for the word. Y'all, could you think what it would look like if all of the Christians bonded together and said, guess what? The Bible is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Guess what? The Bible is absolute truth. And we believe every word of it and we will stand on top of it. What would it look like? What would it look like if Christians came and begged and begged and begged just to get more of God's word? Can I tell you how neat it would be? My goodness, as, as a pastor, how neat would it be if instead of panhandlers coming off of I-20 asking for gas cards, what if they came in and they were like, listen, can we just get a little bit of Jesus? Can we just get some more of God's word? Could you just stop what you're doing? No, we don't want money. We just want a deeper connection with the Lord. We want to understand God's word to a deeper degree. If Christians were hungry like that, ooh, that would be a beautiful, beautiful thing. See, we make all these excuses as to why we can't. Because, see, we recognize God's word sparks revival in our lives. But we set up all these reasons why we can't make it, why we can't get in God's word, why we can't get to it in an assembly where God's word is read. They wanted God's word to be read so much so that they created a church service. See, here's what's interesting. Last week, I pushed and pushed and pushed the importance of small group, the importance of discipleship. I absolutely believe that. Like, we need to do everything we can to make much of small group discipleship. I believe that wholeheartedly. But you do not throw out the importance of getting together for whole congregation, study, and worship. We see this in Scripture all throughout. Nowhere does it say in scripture that we should not assemble in big groups in order to receive and understand and grab a hold of God's word together to worship communally. We see this so much so that they built him a platform, a pulpit to read God's word on. See, a couple months ago, this was funny, it's about a year ago now, Landon, our, our youth guy, comes to me and he goes, hey, listen, there's this big conference that I want to take the, the youth to. There's one in Dallas and there's one in Atlanta. They're identical. Same thing. He goes, but I want to take him to the one in Atlanta. Which, can I just tell you, I thought this kid had absolutely lost his mind. Because if you got one in Dallas and you got one in Atlanta, like, are you smoking dope? Like, why in the world would you want to drive, what is it, like 15 hours to Atlanta, Georgia? To go? I grew up in Atlanta. I don't care that much to go back. I'll be honest. And he wants to go that far. And he said something to me I just couldn't argue. He goes, okay, yeah, exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. And he said, but. Like, there might be a few thousand in, in Dallas, but there's going to be like 20,000 in Atlanta. And I just thought, well played, you little punk. <laughs> Here's the truth to it. There is beauty when we get together as a community and study God's word, in community and worship the Lord, in community and make much of Jesus together. And so that's what they pursue, but they make sure this, and here's where I get with so many different things that scare me. Often we want to get together to make much of emotion. We want to get together to make much of fellowship. We want to get together to make much of a speaker. They got together just to make much of the word of God. That's all that was there. That's all they needed. See, when Ezra gets up, 
Ezra wasn't a preacher. Ezra was a scribe. Like what he did was he just read it. Like that's all he did. And that was enough to spark revival because guess what? God's word doesn't need a young little punk trying to explain it to make it more powerful. I think when you get alone with the God's word, the Holy Spirit within you allows it to come alive. And listen, often the preacher can get in the way of you hearing from the Lord. So you best to be sure that you're making much of God's word in every aspect of your life and getting alone with the Lord on a consistent basis. But then when you get to church, you better make sure that God's word is at the center of everything that you do. Young people, guess what? One day you're probably not going to be here. One day you probably are going to go to college. You might come back. You may not, but hear me. If you ever move out of this area, you better not get caught up in one of those churches that makes much of the preacher, makes much of the worship band, makes much of the size. You better make sure that they make much of the word of God. And that is the center of what they do do and what they teach. So in verse one, all the people gather as one man by the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded to Israel. So God uses his word to spark revival in lives. That's where we find success. See, There was a Nike commercial that came out a few years ago that was very popular. And it's all promoting success and pushing yourself to the utter limit. And what happened was there was this talk about this guy giving this speech. And as he's giving this speech, he talks about this guru. And he talks about this guru that everybody knew in the area that was great at turning people into successes. And so this young man who said he wanted to be successful contacted this guru. And he said, listen, Will you teach me how to be successful? And the guru said, sure, meet me at the beach tomorrow at 4 a.m. The next day, the man was there. The young man shows up, 4 a.m. He says, well, how do I be successful? He says, well, wade out into the water with me. They walk out to knee deep. He says, wade out a little further. They go to waist deep, wade out a little further. They get to where they're treading water. And the young man's treading water going, I do not understand what this has to do with being successful. And so the old man jumps on top of the young man and the guru is holding the young man under the water. And this young man doesn't know what to do. And then he starts to realize he's starting to lose his breath. He can't breathe anymore. He can't hold his breath much longer. He fights to get up. The old man lets him up for a breath and slams him back down. And this fight goes on for minutes, so much so that this young man is exhausted and weary fighting for his life. And finally, the old man drags the young man out of the beach and slams him on the sand. And he says, when you want to be successful more than your desire to breathe, then you'll find success. Listen, that's a very worldly mindset, but let me go ahead and spiritualize it for us. When you want a connection with God's word and it becomes more important to you than anything else, then you find success in every other area of your life. Because when you study God's word, I believe that you start to become more like Jesus when you make much of it. And when you start to become more like Jesus, everything and everyone around you tends to thrive because you're following after the Lord more so than what you would 
before. When we get into God's word, it changes us, it changes our outlook, and it changes the people around us. We always want to make excuses as to why we can't get into community groups, why we can't get to the congregation, why we can't get in God's word. Guess what? You always make time for what is important to you. You always make time for what is important to you. Guess what? No matter how late I am, when I wake up in the morning, it doesn't matter how late I am to whatever appointment. You want to know what I'm going to do before I leave the house? I'm going to get dressed. It just seems like a smart thing to do. You feel me? See, every day, no matter how late I am, no matter how busy I am, I'm not going to cut that corner. See, no matter how late I am, I'm going to make sure that I brush my teeth. It just doesn't matter. That's a non-negotiable for me. You can wait 30 more seconds because that's got to get done. Hey, guess what? There is not a month that I've ever been too busy to not make sure that I've paid my bills. Why? Because there are certain things in our life that are non-negotiables. And when it comes to God's word, having a present in your everyday life, when it comes to coming and being a part of a community group of believers, guess what? It is a non-negotiable that has to happen every single time. Do not miss it, church. Don't, don't try to explain it away. Don't try to compromise it. The reverence for the word of God is something that cannot be replaced, cannot be compromised. We will never experience revival. No one will ever experience revival as long as their Bibles go unread. See, first is a reverence for the word of God. The second ingredient is the reading of the word of God. So they have this incredible worship gathering. They have this incredible revival through reading the word of God. Verse 3. And he read it, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. See, today people come and you you hear from the word for 30 minutes. And there's some people that, y'all, they're the watch lookers. And don't think I don't notice. I know who you are. Mm-hmm. I know the ones that, hey, as soon as that offering plate gets passed, it's like, man, I can start to see you got a little bit of the itch because you don't want to be last at lunch. I understand. But listen, these people waited all day, and I think they would have begged Ezra to keep going. They would have begged him to keep going because they were so hungry for it. Listen, I've seen videos of people in China gathering around a preacher so tight as he whispers the word of God because he's reading the only copy that they have. And they can't be heard by the outside or they could go to prison. And they're just so intent listening to that. I've seen people, my goodness, I've seen boxes of Bibles get sent to congregations in China that legally aren't supposed to have them and watching these men and women cry when they get their very first Bible put into their hands. My goodness, it is life-changing to watch that happen because they recognize that reading the Word of God is transformative. So as they read the Word of God, what's some things that we notice? First of all, he reads it publicly. He makes sure that he reads it in a busy area right by the water gate because he knows that God's word is transformative and those who hear it will be changed. Next, it is practical. It's practical. In verse 3, it says, and he read it 
facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Why were they attentive? Because they knew this had to do with their everyday life. Listen, we all too often, the biggest excuse why people don't want to read scripture is because they think that it doesn't have anything to do with today. Guess what? God knew that his word, when it was crafted, would be used from now until the end of the ages. And he knew that one day it would be in your hands. He made sure that it was going to work for you too. I promise it. I guarantee it. Listen, when God crafted the word of God, he made it timeless. And let me explain something. We love to make excuses as to why it's not practical. We say, you know, I just can't understand it. I just need somebody to explain it. Well, let me get real with you guys for a minute, and let me just challenge you here. Listen, we all have the Holy Spirit inside of us, correct? If you have the Lord within your life. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, then he is the tool, the interpreter for God's word. See, God's word even says that you can't understand it without, God, without the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if you're a Christian, you have it. And you don't need a college degree. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need a preacher to explain to you what it says. You simply need to treat it with reverence and spend some time with it. And let me go ahead and tell you, the closer you get to the Lord, the longer you spend in the word, the more it makes sense to you. Will you know the Greek? No. Do you need to know the Greek? You know what? Not really. It's helpful, but guess what? Let me go ahead and tell you, God's word is sufficient in the copy that you have in your hand today. Do not think that you are insufficient because you are then downgrading the Holy Spirit within you. So it was public, it was practical, and then it was piercing. It changed. And Ezra blessed the Lord, verse 6. The great God and the people answered him, amen and amen, lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads to the, and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. See, God's word's alive. And people often say that a sermon spoke to them or they felt like the preacher was speaking right to them. That is never the case. The truth is, is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you through his word. That is the case every single time. And what really is happening is God's word is piercing your heart. See, the spirit of God took the word of God and brought conviction to the people of God. And as an expression of their worship, because they were so convicted, because they really felt like God was moving, they lifted up their hands. They were saying, amen. People were falling on their faces. Things were looking crazy. Now think about this. In battle, why would anyone raise their hands where there's two reasons in battle. One, you raise your hands in sign of victory. You raise your hands in celebration. The other reason you would raise it is in sign of surrender. And I think what we need to recognize is when we come before the Lord, we should have a heart of both. We walk in victory because we are of the Lord, but we walk in surrender because we are of the Lord. See, what ends up happening is people start acting crazy. People start doing weird stuff. People start saying, amen, they're raising their hands. Now hear me, hear me. I know that there are some times in some churches where people can act crazy. And my goodness, you think, what is wrong with them? But 
can, can I say something? I think when it's done with the right heart, it's not what's wrong with them. It might just be what's right with them. I think when people are raising hands and worshiping, I'm not saying that you have to. And I'm not saying that for everybody, it's what the Lord wants you to do. Here's what I'm saying. Every single time that we encounter God's word, God expects for there to be a response. Now that doesn't have to be visual. That just has to be internal. But sometimes people want to act out the internal by lifting up a hand, by saying amen. Listen, I don't get bothered by that as long as they got the right heart about it. Now hear me, hear me. It is so much easier to tell somebody to calm down than trying to get somebody excited in the first place. I'd much rather have to tell a church people to calm down. Yo, hey, listen, you're being a little intense for everybody else. You need a than rather trying to get everybody excited about what the Lord's word says. Y'all listen, as I look at God's word, we see the importance of a reverence for God. We see important to read the word of God, but we see the importance to respond. And in verse eight, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. See, what ends up happening as I studied this was the people would Ezra would stop for a second and they would get in little groups and they would discuss and apply and figure out what it was meaning and what it was saying and they would all have this little community group if you will then they would go back to Ezra and he would read some more see it reminds me a couple months ago myself and some of the other pastors got to go to Ecuador and we got to meet with a missionary that has been all over Ecuador and one of the things he got to do is work with an unreached people group called the Wadani Indians and he said with the Wadani they're very practical, literal thinkers. And with them, what would happen was, is as he preached, they would stop him. As he was presenting the gospel to these people for the very first time, every few minutes they would have to stop him and then talk with one another and debate it and figure out how that really applied to their life and what that really meant. And then they'd come back to him and go, okay, we're with you. We'll do that. Now what? What's next? And he kept going through the gospel so much so that these people ended up walking away with faith in Christ because they were hearing the word, understanding the word, and applying the word. Listen, as Christians, that's who we're supposed to be. See it, understand it, apply it. See, in verse 7, it says, it helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. See, I think it's important that we make sure that we've explained it to ourselves, that we simply don't let it be words on a page, but we really stretch, we push ourselves to understand the depth of what God's word is. See, one thing that bothers me, bothers me as a pastor, bothers me as a Christian is when other Christians say, listen, I'm just a simple Christian. I'm not into really deep theology. I'm not, I don't really want to, I just really just want to, you know, salvation is good, reading the Bible's good, but I don't want to really go too deep. That's just not who I am. Well, guess what? Would you ever say that to your spouse? Hey, listen, I want to know a little bit about you, but could you keep all the details to yourself? Like, could I just get like the base information and then call it good? I don't think that marriage would last very long. See, I think what's important is, is that we strive every day to know Jesus intimately. And we do that through his word. Listen, theology is just a fancy phrase, a fancy word to basically say to know Jesus deeper, more intimately. And I think we need to strive to become experts in who 
Jesus is because that is the Savior that died on the cross for you. Don't you want to know everything about him? See, a reverence for the word of God, reading the word of God, and you respond to the word of God, that's what brings revival to community. Do I believe that IBC as a whole needs revival? I don't. Because I feel like we're moving in the right direction. But here's what I do think we need to do. We need to be the spark that brings revival to our community. Do you hear me? Like if we just simply stay living in the sense of revival here, that's one thing. But I think God told us to live outward. To turn the inward facing circle to an outward facing circle. And to saying that, can we not turn Marshall on fire for the Lord because of the revival that's already happened in your heart before. The essentials for revival, a hunger for God's word, the hearing of God's word and the heeding of God's word. Listen, for those of you in here that really you're not connected with me, you're just not getting it. You feel like God's word isn't alive and living and you have no connection with it. Let me ask you, do you have a relationship with Jesus? And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then it makes sense as to why God's word would make no sense to you at all. But hear me, please don't leave this room without having confidence as to who your eternity belongs to. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for today. God, I thank you that we have this opportunity to dive into your word and make much of it. And God, here's what I ask. God, I ask that you will do everything within your power to help us to recognize the importance for your word, the need for your word. Give us a desire for your word that is more prevalent in our hearts than anything else. God, I pray that we will desire a connection with you and your word more than we desire to breathe. Lord, because I believe that that is even more important. God, thank you for this opportunity to make much of you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.